welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand and international politics podcast. We're joined today by Tila Moose and our co-host Justine. Welcome to the cast, folks. Shana, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here as always. Now we had a cast some months ago now around the Waikaria protests with Emmy, I think. But you've said there's some kind of more news coming out about that situation now that, you know, it's blown over in the media tea. Did you want to give us that quick, oh no, or, or long, you know, however, however long <laughs> you need to take, update on, on what's happening over there? Listen, if you put a mic in front of me, it's going to be a long update. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to ask a PhD student for a short. Yeah, no. Um, short, that means like under 20 minutes, right? Yeah, um, cool. <laughs> no, no, but but actually, I mean, maybe it would be helpful just to start with a bit of a recap of what happened um, with the Waikiria uprising, and then I can kind of say what what's going on at the moment. So the Waikiria uprising was over uh, just over a week um, at the big, at end of last year, beginning of this year, where um, twenty odd prisoners at Waikiria Prison in the Waikato stormed onto the roof of the old part of the jail. Um, and started lighting fires and um, basically burning the jail to the ground. Now, this didn't come out of nowhere. This wasn't just some bunch of boisterous people getting together and causing shit. This came about because of very serious concerns about the material conditions that people were living in at at that prison. And it's something that um, people have been aware of for a really long time. The Obensman had written multiple reports saying that this prison is not fit for human uh, habitation. You know, that prison building itself was over 100 years old. Um, I've personally visited that building uh, quite a few times myself. And I have been to a couple of different prisons around, around Aotearoa. Um, but that building in particular always gave me the heebie-jeebies. It, it is the place where the most people have died in any one building in, in New Zealand prisons estate, maybe of any building ever, I'm not sure. It's the site of the most the, the 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 only case that I'm aware of in recent history of a prisoner being killed by prison guards. It is the site of the most deplorable conditions of solitary confinement. There wasn't clean drinking water. There wasn't um, adequate access to food. There were people were in extended solitary confinement. It was a pretty horrible place to live. And so, when we're thinking about the Waikiki uprising, it really is in reaction to those things. And and the men themselves wrote a manifesto, which said exactly this. They said that this was a political action in response to the deplorable conditions that people were living in. So in the aftermath of the uprising, the men involved, but also about 200 people in Waikiria prison got moved all around the country to different prisons. And so New Zealand has 18 prisons. And most of them are located pretty far away from the main centers. So when most people go to prison, it, it's very hard for whānau. It tends to be quite hard for whānau to go and visit. Um, and compared to other countries, New Zealand has some of the, the biggest kind of distances between the main centers and, and prisons, which makes it incredibly hard and expensive for people to go visit their loved ones. But we also know that maintaining whānau connections are absolutely essential if pe- if we want to make sure that when people get out of prison, they have the best chance of not going back in. And so part of, part of what happened with the uprising was, yeah, there were a whole heap of people got, who got moved further away from their whānau. 
And so um, I'm involved um, with People Against Prisons Aotearoa, and you, you talked to Emily Rakete, um earlier this year about the uprising, who's, who's our, our press spokesperson. And uh, yesterday we launched um, our Waikaria uh, Uprising Reconnection Fund, which is about creating funding for Fano of prisoners who are moved out of Waikaria, getting funding for them to go and visit. It's a really concrete thing that we can do to make sure that uh, people um, who were affected by the uprising make sure that they kind of still get to maintain their whānau connections. Yeah, so that's kind of the, the the main kind of news of the kind of proactive political element of the Waikiri uprising. But there's also a lot of other kind of repercussions that we can we can talk about as well. Yeah. So when when it was happening, there was a whole bunch of political manoeuvring from from the Labour Party and, and Calvin Davis in particular. Uh, just some pretty horrible stuff, really. And after that happened, the media kind of went quiet on it. You know, we haven't really heard anything about it since <laughs> since Calvin Davis refused to give over the newsletter to reporters because they might see the crossword. And... Mm-hmm. So what what's happened <laughs> yeah. since then? Maybe I can exp- explain a little bit of that context. So, so yeah, Calvin Davis um, was a a coward basically and throughout the whole process refused to engage and it took the Māori Party MP um, Rabari Waititi going to visit the people, the protesters uh, for it actually to come to an end. But yeah, so so basically after after the uprising, People Against Prisons Aotearoa, Papa, we sent out a newsletter like we do every three months or so to people in prison being like, yo, this thing happened, let's do something about it, let's organise non-violently so that this never has to, has to happen again. Then as a way to kind of defame Rawari and defame Papa, the Corrections Minister, Calvin Davis, got up in the house and waved around this newsletter, which, yeah, as you said, Kyle, he refused to give over to journalists because he wanted to keep the suspense. Um, I think, I don't know. We wanted to be able to lie about it. I, so he got up and he got up in the house and he defamed us and said, we were inciting a riot, we were being reported to the police, um, and uh, this is a violent material. Meanwhile, yeah, the 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 newsletter itself has crosswords, it's got poetry, it's got information on how people can organise non-violently and safely in prison to get them their basic human rights met, and it lays out what those human rights are. So it's pretty, it's pretty like a basic... Sounds pretty incendiary to me. I mean, I yeah. <laughs> I certainly am disturbed to hear that. I didn't I didn't realize that was what was in it. Um, so, <laughs> how do you defend putting a crossword? Um, oh, in anything, I mean, especially when the clues are like spell out Calvin Davis as a cunt, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, name the biggest coward working for the <laughs> New Zealand government, <laughs> Calvin Davis. <laughs> okay. No, but, but you know. <laughs> the, the the newsletter itself in a sense was a real threat to the department of corrections because one thing that they are terrified of beyond anything else is that prisoners actually stand up for their basic human rights right because the prison system simply cannot function if human rights are being met because you know in order to just keep on going um they need to put people in extended lockdown they need to deny people health services they needed to de- deny um people access to adequate food and, and, and drinking water because they just literally do not have the facility do not have the capacity to to actually um provide basic human rights and we'll see so, some of that uh, shit get just out of this world in terms of 
what's being covered even. And, and whenever I see something covered uh, and it's pretty bad, I'm like, oh, it's probably worse in that case. Uh, but we had the stuff happening in women's prisons, right? That okay. kind of took the the justice uh, media spotlight uh, over the last few months. Uh, and that yeah, culminated I- in the discovery, I guess, um, or reporting that women were being handcuffed while giving birth. Horrendous. Yeah, heavily pregnant women and women in labour who were handcuffed to their beds so that they couldn't escape while they were in labour. It's truly inhumane. Most other Western countries have actually banned this practice because it is just so inhumane. And it's good to see that finally corrections after denying it even took place has now saying, is now saying that they're, that they um, aren't going to do it anymore. But yeah, certainly stuff happening in the women's prisons, women being gassed and it's nothing short of being gassed in their cells as a way to remove them from their cells. So where corrections officers throw a, a really intense version of pepper spray into a cell and the only way that the, that the people could avoid getting basically suffocated from by this was to put their heads in the toilet, right? That is how people avoided, because well, one of the, the stories that's been reported in the news was a woman who's asthmatic, who genuinely could suffocate from um, pepper spray. Um, we also, you know, the ombudsman's reported on this as well, that when one cell gets sprayed, other cells get affected too. So we've got this form of collective punishment where just because there's one person in the unit who's being punished, it means the whole unit gets punished. It, I mean, there's also, there are other things that um, I'm not sure how much I can say at the moment because uh, they are allegations that I'm very concerned about that have been coming to me uh, from prisoners, from their Fano, especially around medical treatment being put in extremely dangerous and life-threatening situations because corrections doesn't want to transfer people to hospital or because they have got a lockdown regime and they don't want to go and check on someone. Really, really concerning allegations that I think when they, when they come to light will be as shocking as these cases of, of these women. And so, yeah, there, there's all this context and it, it's, it's not, it wasn't a coincidence that when the story came out about the women at Auckland Women's who were gassed in their cells, when that story came out, it wasn't surprising that the next day was when Calvin Davis got up on the floor of the house and defamed us, right? It was a classic case of deflection because this is a person who doesn't want scrutiny. This is a person who doesn't, when there is speech that he disagrees with, he believes it's within his power to censor it. And that's exactly what happened here is uh, Calvin Davis's department disagreed with political speech and so censored it. Um, and I think that is profoundly concerning. It's profoundly disturbing. Everything that seems to come out of the Department of Corrections is profoundly disturbing and not in keeping with what, you know, I mean, we sort of highlight a lot of what's the the shift, right? I guess I guess we're not exactly a positive podcast. We're not like this is going great. Boy. Um, <laughs> but in terms of I, I think I think the department of no yeah yeah fair enough Carl. Um the Department of, of Corrections must be the worst, you know, by I mean and that and that's quite a prize because there's some really terrible um government departments. I mean, yeah, like in terms of just the sheer scale of human rights abuses and atrocities. Yeah, it's pre- it's pretty miserable, right? And it's it's you know I I can complain about my freedom of speech being 
you know, taken away um, because newsletters are being confiscated. But, you know, that's really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the actual inhumane treatment that people are experiencing. Yeah, um, it's, it's Geneva Convention shit. Uh, like, yeah. a, a lot of it, most of the Star Trek confinement practices that Corrections currently operates uh, in their prisons are, you know, internationally illegal. Yeah, absolutely. If we're, if we're talking about about Calvin Davis and solitary confinement, I, I can I can I can talk a bit of shit there too. Because um, in 2018, I wrote a report for the think tank called Ezra um, about solitary confinement, and you can check that out um, on Ezra's website, Solitary Confinement in New Zealand Prisons. And you know, it pretty clearly details what kind of the extent of solitary confinement, its effects, what international bodies are saying, what New Zealand observers are saying, and it lays it out pretty clearly. This is what's going on, and this is a, a breach of human rights. Uh, when that came out, so before that came out, actually, Calvin Davis, in opposition, was really fighting up against solitary confinement. He was. I, he, I remember him putting out a press release in 2016 uh, when a, a person took their own life when they're in solitary confinement and he made the very clear link solitary confinement is causing causing self-inflicted death as soon as he got into power i put out this report and he said solitary confinement does not exist in new zealand prisons um because that's the kind of that's the kind of useless way that that this person operates right so he, he got into power and then he just listened to the corrections officials rather than actually sticking to his principles or trying to actually understand what was going on he took the word of corrections officials over what he'd experienced actually going into prisons when he was in opposition just pathetic truly it really, pathetic. It really is it's too stark it's incredibly stark the difference between opposition calvin davis and um, minister calvin davis yeah, it it, it, it it was it was profoundly disappointing, eh? You know, like it was we were really hopeful that the, we might have at least some movement on criminal justice reform with this government and it it I can't see it happening anytime soon. I wrote a piece for Jacobin earlier this year um kind of outlining how little the Labour government has done on criminal justice issues even though it was elected on a platform to uh, transform the justice system it has done little and it's not indicating that it's going to do very much more why do you think that is i mean like um we don't i mean i think we're starting to have more of a discussion about criminal justice especially following the waikiri uprising and some of the things that have been you know the exposes of um the conditions in our prisons but i mean in comparison it seems like a lot of other countries are having this like sort of moment of reflection right about mm. the criminal justice system um and yet in in aotearoa the that political moment hasn't occurred doesn't seem to occur hasn't caught on how what do you make of that i think it's it's a whole heap of stuff you, you're certainly right that in a lot of the rest of the west there is a movement to decarceration in the us and the uk there's conscious effort to reduce the prison populations but the same thing can't be said about new zealand there's a target but no way to get there. And, you know, in part it's because of New Zealand's social history, I think, uh, that, you know, the early 2000s really were defined, politics were to a large part defined by a tough on crime mentality and what's called penal populism, which came about because of the 1999 referendum, which was very, very confusing. And if anyone tells you the 1999 referendum was about putting in place tougher punishment, it's not true. The 99, ref 99, 99 referendum was about putting in place tougher punishment, but also restorative practices 
and and second chances. So it was very confused. It was a it was a referendum that passed with over ninety percent, I think, um, support. But it basically said everything. It did everything and nothing. But it was used subsequently by the Clark Labor government to introduce a series of really draconian criminal justice uh, changes, which were almost entirely responsible for why we have such a huge prison population at the moment. Name something more iconic than a Labor government using a referendum to do things that the (laughs) referendum does not say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I, 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 re- I, I really wish they would just be like, fuck it, we're going to pass the cannabis legalization uh, legislation because it's, it, it's just the right thing to do. Anyway, anyway so, so that's part of the context. <laughs> it's, 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 that, that part of the context is this kind of recent history around real punitive criminal justice policy. And a, a kind of drive by both major electoral parties and the media, especially, picking up... You're basically wholesale buying policy from the states around three strikes, um, picking up television shows like um, Speed Patrol or Police, whatever, and and using that as a form of entertainment alongside infotainment stories being the main uh, kind of criminal justice stories for a decade, really. Um, And even now you're getting those kind of like cops bust big balls kind of shit. (laughs) You know, like, look, they just got 16 Audis. Um, here they are, snorting <laughs> some crack. I don't know. Um, that, and that tends to be uh, the story that you're getting about criminal justice in New Zealand um, until very recently. And so you've got this yeah. historical thing that I, I think we want to go further back as well because it matched up so perfectly with the way that the system works to incarcerate um, and marginalise, I, I guess, just broadly, uh, our Indigenous population here. You know, and it, yeah, to- it was such an easy transition into um, having a whole bunch of brown criminals on on the on the airwaves. Absolutely, and it is part of the, the kind of racist colonial history of Aotearoa. It, I mean, like I said, I could talk about this for at length, right? But it's, I mean, one of, part of the the prison history that people don't know in New Zealand was that Māori really resisted the introduction of prisons to New Zealand. In fact, for about 20 years, Māori um, actually did have a separate legal system and weren't eligible to be sent to prison in the um, mid to late 1800s. And this, this is directly because it was seen that, that, that the prison was such so morally and you know, epistemologically opposed to the Māori, world, Māori worldviews. But with, the, um, with you know, answering that question of why we're currently where we are, you know, I, I think there's something to be also be said about exactly what you're saying, Kyle, around media production. I just uh, l- last year I taught a, um, a lecture to a, a criminology paper about media and crime, um, and one of the things I learned as I was as I was teaching was just how the method or the mode of production of media in New Zealand is so vulnerable to taking up crime stories because the media environment is so under-resourced police news is a really, really easy way to produce a story because rather than, you know, if we're thinking about a journalist's time as cost, right, rather than having to go away and verify the multiple sources for a story, when a, when a journalist takes a police press release or a police stand-up word for word, it takes that police stand-up or press release as fact and it doesn't have to go away and do anything else. And so it's really cheap. It's really, really cheap 
to produce tr crime stories. And that's part of the reason we have so many crime stories in our news media is because they are some of the cheapest to produce. Yeah, crime um, stories and pull quotes, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think you're right though, Kyle, that something is changing and the media, the media landscape has changed. There is a lot more critical um, discussion. There's a lot more um, stuff going on um, and, and actually highlighting, um, you know, the, the, the mistreatment, inhumane treatment in our, in our prisons. But in, in terms of, I think, why we're not seeing quick movement like there is overseas, like their real, real concerted effort to reduce prison population is because of national. And National has really doubled down on the tough on crime stuff, on the kind of the racist dog whistling stuff. Um, and it is really trying to trying to um, talk to a base that I'm not sure if it's listening. But I think Labour realises there's a liability here that they but will get criticised by National. Labour has um, an outright majority. Kind of justice stuff. Yeah, yeah. But so, Labour so only cares can, about the next election, right? It's, it's, it's incredible to me. Uh, that they, you know, they're elected on this particular, you know, we, we, we cried about uh, how they weren't really running on anything, but they did have a policy platform. They've basically done nothing with it. Uh, and, yeah, bending over backwards to try and keep these imaginary national voters who, as you say, there is there even a voting population for this anymore? Yeah, I mean, it, it is hard to say. So people do have very, um, understandably, have really emotional responses to crime issues. But it, it's often, there were, even a couple of days ago, there was a story in RNZ about um, kind of the levels of punitiveness in New Zealand society and in relation to crime. But uh, often those kinds of studies are really misread because most people hold complex and contradictory views around crime and will have very different responses to to a, a to a crime if they hear about it in the abstract about someone who's got nothing to do with them but the, the more that they actually what, what what study shows the more people hear about the the personal background the details the social context more people hear about context basically um the more restorative their approach and is, just right? to go back to my media analysis wheelhouse as yeah. well this is exactly why uh, to our audience you'll see stories you know, talk, predominantly talking about uh, young white men or, or white businessmen or celebrities, which take the, I'm going to say, political choice to centre that person as a father or as a, a brother or as, you know, a good mate, um, because there is an understanding that use of context in that way makes people more sympathetic. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and And I think that uh, one of the things I'm, I'm kind of um, proud about with the the aftermath of the Waikaria uprising is that at first the story was violent prisoners rioting, right? And there are certain there's certainly a large portion of the New Zealand population who will still believe that. But I think that one of the things that Papua, alongside others, were able to do was able to point to the very real human rights abuses that were happening in the lead up, and then and then eventually once Fano sent us the manifesto we're actually able to say, well, this is, this is people who are, who are experiencing grossly inhumane conditions and who are taking a stand against it. I, I actually would like to just talk about what those protesters are experiencing right now, because I'm in contact with quite a few of the partners of the men involved. And I also go to court hearings about what's going on, although I can't talk about it because it's um, most of it's suppressed, but eventually we will be able to talk about it. Um, but the, 
those men all got moved to the maximum security prison in Auckland, Pari Moremo. And I think almost all of them are remanded in custody, which means that they've never, they, had, they haven't actually been found guilty of a crime. They're there awaiting their trial for other matters, most of them. And the way that they're being treated, from what I've heard, is disgusting. It's even worse than they were being treated at Waikiria. But really individualized, targeted, allegedly targeted forms of, I would say, political violence. There is one person who is in a cell next to uh, the person who committed the the Christchurch terrorist event. And that unit that he is in is supposedly a prison within a prison, which exists to confine and punish the most extremely violent people. This is, so this, this person is someone who has not been charged. That's right. And he is in solitary confinement. Wow. He has five minutes of phone calls a week. He gets, I think, one letter he can send a week, um, which I think is, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the, what the regulations are there. He was for a, a while, I'm not sure if he still is, denied access to reading material, denied access to TV. And so has that real extreme version of solitary confinement, which is meant to destroy people, right? And it's also why we shouldn't even let the most heinous, for me, this, this, is, this is the exact reason why human rights have to be universally applied. They have to be applied in every case. Otherwise, when we start making exceptions, when we start saying, well, this person's human rights don't matter, say in the case of the, the Christchurch terrorist, right? When we say his rights don't matter, the fact that we are willing to put him in torturous conditions means that there is now an infrastructure in place to put other people in that situation, right? It's why that we cannot allow that person to be used as an excuse to undermine all of our human rights. So, I, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the context, right? That these, the men who were involved in the Waikiria uprising have had some of the most brutal uh, backlash, allegedly, that I have heard the entire time I've been working with people in prison. Should this be the case, isn't it just going to be a huge Ministry of Corrections blowout? Like, no. these would be just be clear cases where the courts would find against the ministry, aren't they? Yeah, potentially. But the... I, I like, you can't say anything. You can't say anything. Yeah, but... it, it's, it's really hard to know whether or not anyone would care. There was only one lawyer who made any kind of political claim at the hearings that I was at um, for the, there were 16 men, one lawyer. And what he said was, I have a substantive issue that needs to be addressed. And the magistrate was like, okay, well, let's hear it. And it was my client is being held in 23 hour solitary confinement. He has no access to any computers and he's self representing. So this lawyer was more of an aide than a, than a actual legal representative. He needs, there are 20,000 pages of documents that he needs access to that he doesn't have access to. And the, magistrate said sorry that's a substantive issue i'm not going to deal with that today wait until july so this was last month wow um and so this person yeah self-representing and needs access to disclosure documents in order to build his case and 
and isn't being uh, given access to it because he's being held in solitary and because he's not being allowed access to a computer. That is insane. Be kind, everybody. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. Wow. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I, I mean, I... I it's just... It, it makes... It, it kind of reveals, you know, I, I think just the extent to which the rule of law doesn't apply to certain people in this country. You know, like, these are, these are the things that are supposedly the basis of democracy. The right to... I mean, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. No, no. The, as I understand the right, it... <laughs> the right to a fair trial. The right to be proven... To be innocent until proven guilty. That's, not, that's no longer a right in New Zealand. The right, the right to, to be... Not to be put in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. But, but even the right to appeal... You know, the, the the whole gauntlet of things. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, dehumanization doesn't quite capture the extent to which the rule of law, the supposed yeah. universal thing does not. Um, it's totally systemic, eh? It's, yeah. um, you know, we, we talk about dehumanization, you know, as happening to individuals, but we don't often talk about it as a, a bureaucracy um, or a, a series of systems and structures that are designed to do that. Yeah. Uh, and whenever these issues come up, it just really brings strongly back to me just how easily um, our ministers, our, you know, our voted and politicians are also captured by the system. And, and, you know, no no excuses for Calvin Davis, but as we've discussed and as people will know, before he was minister, he had some pretty, he did some pretty good work. Um, and as soon as he steps in there, just totally switches over totally. because it, the system is there to assimilate mm. um and, you know that's a, that's a part of colonialism as well it's there to to take um especially uh people who rotate through uh, as opposed to you know lifelong uh, appointees or something like that um and quickly turn them into creatures of the machine mm. um and you know, I, again uh I, I don't give a fuck about calvin davis but it dehumanizes everyone else involved in the machine um, to an extent as well. Mm. Totally. One of the things that's often shocked me with corrections is how disconnected the head office is from the material conditions on the ground. I remember back when I was researching my, um, my paper on solitary confinement, I got a call from someone in corrections so I asked for stuff, stuff through the information, official information act. And I had to explain on the ground policies to head office because they'd never heard of it before. Wow. Very don't ask, don't tell, eh? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, it was just, it's just wild that, that, I mean, I, I don't know how much of it is ignorance, willful ignorance or not unwillful ignorance, but it is just, I mean, just know, walk into the prison, mate. Like yeah, you your head office. Actually, you know, I think maybe I can give some insight. Um, you know, as a, as a union person, you often end up in rooms with people who, you know, you talk to people on the ground, but then you also end up in meetings with people who are at the highest echelons of an institution. Right. And what I, the observation I've come, you know, like I've really, that's been quite clear to me is the way that people at the top um, protect themselves from hearing too much about what's going on um at the bottom because that you know it's almost like there are it's like security levels of security um and i think it's it's a psychological um coping mechanism 
you know, with not wanting to deal with the reality of something that really you are complicit and responsible in. But yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and you get these, um, you get reformers who will, even people who, you know, come out as, you know, stated reformers and want to reform the system, but very quickly are um, become, you know, uh, exactly like, like turn into the person who has all those layers between themselves and the actual material conditions of the institution that they're, they're um, hitting. So, um, yeah, I could tell some stories about that. And their, their mantra is it's an operational matter. Yes, yes, yeah, you have to. And, and, I, think, and I think that that's, um, you know, an abdication of, I, I, and I do think that's the way that institutions have their own, in and of itself, have their own momentum. And, I mean, there's a reason people say, you know, you're not going to reform the system, the system is going to change you. I mean, there's, like, some truth to that. If you don't have accountability to people on the outside, you will get swept in. And I think that's the danger of it, right? I mean, unless you're a really powerful person like for instance, really cool dude yeah really cool dude and calvin davis uh, no uh, absolutely no no not. absolutely not, he's man. a loser that's an uncool <laughs> man yeah i mean i mean i'm not sure if that makes sense but that's just no, my makes um, total sense my insight you know i see how how people insulate themselves from um what's actually happening t just so we we don't um continue to just be an incredibly negative podcast <laughs> do you want to uh, just go over again uh, with our listeners what they can do in, in this situation um, and some of the initiatives that Papa is currently undertaking or, or sure. other organisations are currently undertaking um, before we move on to our next topic tonight. Sure, I would love to. So I guess generally after the Waikiri uprising, Papa launched a new strategy called Nga Ringa Ringa Iroa, um, which is about building committees inside prison and outside prisons. That, that was kind of the subject of the newsletter that, supposedly was inciting a riot and so what we're trying to do at the moment is we're trying to build political committees um, outside prison inside prison to campaign on human rights abuses in our prisons so i guess if you are a part of another organization that cares about justice issues get in contact with me and we can maybe look at it at forming together join papa's mailing list if you want but in a really if you've got if you've got some spare money you can also contribute to the waikiria um, transport fund and Kyle would you link to that in the show description yep uh, so awesome so I think we've retweeted it uh, through the cast as well um, but we will also link it in the show description um, so yeah. that if you if you want to go and try go to that fund uh, it'll be easy for you and, and where we've kind of the way we're, we're hoping to do it is that we're hoping to get about $50 per whanau. Um so if you think of $50 as funding one trip so maybe whatever contribution you make, maybe you'll contribute half a trip or one trip or two trips, whatever, you know, you're, you, you are able to, but you know, um, in, anything would be really appreciated. So yeah, it's not going to fix everything, but it's certainly going to make what we hope a really big improvement to prisoners lives who were affected by the uprising. Papa is doing um, amazing work. So if you do have a moment, check them out, check out their website, follow them on social media, the whole rest of it. Donate. We're the ninth most popular podcast in New Zealand, aren't we? Sure. <laughs> it changes. It changes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, sometimes I'm, it goes I'm up. Sometimes it goes to seventy third. I, I don't we're know. The, we're the fifth most popular political podcast in New Zealand. Uh, T, you said uh, people could contact you. Where where can they do that? And um, what's the Papa website? Papa.org.nz. So p a p a.org.nz. You can email me at info at papa.org.nz. Yep. I'll I'll check that email. Amazing. So 
for anyone who wants to to get involved, who wants to who wants to give, uh, follow through those links. Um, again, we'll pop it into the description as well. And yeah, thanks for all your work on that with Papa T. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, you're you're lucky that you're able to to keep me under an hour. So well done. <laughs> I have I have Bronco and Philip on here usually. You know, it's um something I'm <laughs> used to at this point. Hey, we're going to take a, a short break uh, and we'll be back straight after that to talk uh, the recent issues occurring in the Middle East with the, I guess, just recent uh, ceasefire that has occurred between Israel and Palestine. We'll be right back with you. All right, welcome back, everyone. Justine. Do you want to give us a quick, horrible rundown of the last uh, few weeks? It's been a fucking nightmare. Uh, indeed, it has, as it tends to be um, with issues relating to Israel-Palestine. Where to start? I mean, uh, this uh, wave of uh, Israeli, what I would call Israeli aggression and violence, um, rather than conflict, because it's not a conflict between two parties but rather um a colonial uh state infringing on its indigenous population uh you know gaza the gaza strip where um, palestinians live is about the size of canterbury hamas um despite you know what you'll hear in the media has no military so to call it a conflict really is doing a disservice to the real nature obviously of um of what's happening there but uh so yeah it all um sort of kicked off um because of settlement expansion in the suburb of sheikh jirah in uh, jerusalem and sheikh jirah is um was a majority uh, palestinian suburb so jerusalem's one of those i mean do you, how familiar are we with um israel palestine I'm incredibly familiar, but our audience might not be. Oh, yes, of course. I have to think about the audience. I'm not just talking to my two friends. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so, uh, yes, um, the, there's sort of been ongoing incursions of it. Uh, like, Jerusalem is um, a mix. What we See, what, the thing that people don't realise about Israel, and I think is important to drive home, is it, um, we don't call it an apartheid state as a metaphor. It quite literally is, um, you know, a segregated... Um, land where um, with one you know people in a position of privilege allowed freedom of movement and one who are unable to, and Palestinians who are unable to so it really is a Jewish supremacist country um, but the reason I point that out is because we actually say that some cities are mixed and I, and we mean that as in mixed race you know it like it's like what fucking year is it but yeah so Jerusalem is a mixed city Jesus Christ and Sheikh Yarrah was um, a Palestinian suburb and settlements. Uh, the Israeli courts have basically been um, undermining uh, these people's rights to their homes, taking their homes from them, not allowing them legal appeal. You've got people from Brooklyn, New York, uh, stealing people's um, homes in broad daylight. And you've got videos of these people from like, you know, the Bronx be, uh, taking people's homes and then being like, well, what do you, what do you want me to do about it? I, I'm just stealing homes here. I don't know. Is that, yeah, I, is that, I, one of the ones I saw, the dude literally said, if I don't steal it, somebody else will. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't know how you sleep at night. Uh, <laughs> that's your justification. But no, like really, really stark kind of things coming out that really illustrate just 
I don't know how despicable um, these, like the the Israeli state apparatuses, and I mean, so people are being. I think like the story of Israel Palestine is the continual displacement of Palestinian people, and just it's ongoing. But basically, what happened in Sheikh Jarrah kind of uh, kicked shit off, um, as it, you know, um, because of just how brazen it was, um, and um, so it, so you know, uh, it sort of ignited violence from um the settlers so this so the people who tend to settle in these areas tend to be um religious and right-wing extremists and i think it all started with some violence over on the last day of ramadan which is one of the you know high holy days for um muslims and um so israeli settlers sort of did you know, property damage, sang um, terrible songs, like violent sort of songs, wishing death on um, Palestinians. And um, that sort of ignited a wave of protests, both uh, within Israel and Gaza. Um, I think probably the main thing that's, that makes this conflict stand out versus, I don't know, previous eruptions of violence is is that the at this time it erupted both within um, the Israel, Israel, Israeli borders, uh, the, the ever expanding Israeli border and Gaza. So it wasn't, it was, um, so Palestinians within greater Israel and outside of Israel stood up to the Israeli state. And that, Israel just couldn't let that happen. And so they responded with um, absolutely unwarranted and you know just grievous and horrific aggression killing over 200 and i think last count it was 245 palestinians um to yeah in response sort of as actually as revenge i don't know if that sums it up i think that sums it do you think that sums it up carl yeah i think that um that sums it up just think so you know i i can think of this conflict a lot of different ways but one of the ways i think of it is you know Gaza is a prison and it is a highly securitized, highly controlled prison. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what that means, but also um, kind of why that kind of prison, prisonified kind of highly densely populated area was, means that there's so many civilian casualties. Yeah. I mean, um, like human rights organizations have described Gaza as effectively an open air prison and that isn't hyperbole. Um, you know, I think, uh, however you want, I mean, that was Amnesty International, actually, let me be clear. Amnesty International described Gaza as an effectively an open air prison. Um, you've got 2 million people who live effectively within a place, the size of Christchurch, maybe a little bit larger, they do not have access to, I mean, um, the UN described Gaza as, you know, like technically it is not inhabitable in terms of, you know, just the things, the essentials of life, clean water, um, housing, education, medical care when you need it. The idea of it as a prison, I mean, literally it's the, the basic of you've got, you've got huge, a hugely crowded small area blockaded from land and sea and air and people without any kind of freedom of movement. And I mean, I think it's like, a, it's like, it is a prison in many ways. I think one of the ways um, is that I think that the Gaza, Gazan people are continually being tortured actually by the Israeli state. It's the continual and ongoing and everyday violence of living under occupation that I think specifically makes it such a 
horrific just human rights travesty the whole situation you know it's really difficult to talk about it honestly because it's so awful it's almost out of the gate you know for those of us kind of living in Aotearoa living sort of you know comfortable lives just the conditions that these that Gazans are subjected to and and every day and it's not just during conflict is just so utterly heinous and the world and, and, and I mean, and, and the West is so complicit in it. It, it, it really, I think that's why people have, su- have had such a, I think, you know, people always say, why, why Palestine? Why do people care so much about this issue? Compo- you know, there are other places where human rights are being abused. Um, I think, I think the, the reason that this, this Israel-Palestine gets so much attention is one, you know, the West's complicity in what's happening, you know, we like literally fund, well, not we, but, you know, the US primarily is a huge funder of what's going on. And I think Americans have every right to feel a certain way about that. But um, I think, I think it's the, um, the length of time this has been going on, but also the severity of this open air prison, you know, Um, and the recognition of just how much human suffering, I don't know. Yeah, and something that T was alluding to there as well was that was the number of civilian casualties, you know, and you'll often hear, uh, you know, there'll be an, Israel will do an airstrike in, in retaliation um, or something along those lines will be the official line. And they just had an apartment block because there might be a military asset there. Turns out when you're this densely populated, you're going to kill a, a bunch of people as well. Well, exactly. And and I think what, what is especially just, I mean, Israel, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, likes to say it's the most moral army in the world. Um, I can't believe they're still fucking saying that, eh? Yeah, yeah, like the audacity. But, I mean, firstly, let's make it clear. I, like, when you have to, any, any military calling itself the most moral military should raise eyebrows <laughs> because militaries by nature are not exactly like, I don't look to the military for ethical guidance on, you know, like... Anything? Just, yeah, no, nothing. Absolutely nothing, right? So, yeah, the, the supposedly the most moral army in the world. I'm not sure you can have a moral army, but that's just my opinion. Um, and, yeah, so, as a, you know, you, as you said, Carl, it's the most one of the most densely populated places in the world. You've got two million people just squished together. I think that, I mean, like, Israelis, Israeli politicians have outwardly said that, the, that they want to um, starve the pal- Palestinians, that they want to, like, inflict, that, that they want to torture them. I mean, I, I, I need to get the, the quote, but the intention, the, they've been very clear about their intentions. Um, and the Israeli media sort of apparatchiks echo the same refrain in, they might not say this, they might not say it in English, but if you speak Hebrew, you know exactly the intent and there's really no humanitarian intent there. But, um, so I, I, I find it difficult. I find it, I don't think that their excuses are plausible. I do think that the intention is to harm civilians. Um, I think that, it, I, I think that that is a cover story. I, yeah, the whole specter of Hamas is just ridiculous at this, at this point. As I said, we're talking about one of the most well-funded militaries in the world against what, like, uh, a, uh, one of the poorest, I mean, like, Hamas, Hamas is no credible threat to Israel. It, well, it's it, a it, classic fascist frame, right? Yeah. The enemy is always weak and the enemy is always strong. Yeah. Uh, like, they are, they are always a constant threat, but they can do nothing because we are stronger. <clears throat> Except they apply it the way that Israel applies it outwardly is to also claim that they are both um, strong and weak. 
So they say, oh, they shoot missiles at us, but the Iron Dome protects us. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, and... Uh, now, okay, which one is it, mate? They, well, well, they want to have their cake and eat it too. Um, Zionism is an interesting ideology in that it's sort of, it is fascist in the sense that it's a celebration of like might is right, you know? I mean, like, I think um, Netanyahu was once literally quoted as being like, the strong survive, the weak perish, yeah. forgotten by history. I mean, it's, it's like, on their Twitter account. Yeah, it's on their Twitter account. You can go look at it. It's really, it, it, it actually is frightening reading it. It's like, this isn't. Uh, this isn't a healthy thing to think um but at the same time it's got it's got this huge victim complex you know i think um i saw a really good cartoon actually where it um you know because israel often describes itself often sees itself as a david in um surrounded by goliaths which is such an absurd thing and you know it's, it really is the opposite so i saw it a really great um sort of cartoon that depicted like a huge david against a small goliath and it was like david's got him pretty big um and i think i think that's a good parable so yeah so zionism both sees itself as you know this um this force in which might has triumphed but also as a victim and i think um there's something quite unique about that well possibly not overly unique but it is different to other sort of ideologies of colonization and like its mindset and i think it really <laughs> takes I, I think i think it's not very compelling i have to say i just don't think it's very compelling you can't have it you can't have it both ways which way is it yeah unfortunately they have hundreds of billions of dollars pouring into them from the united states and a, a media and electoral apparatus uh, across the western world uh, that compels people for them. Yeah, no, I do think absolutely, and I think that's the reason. Like for such a long time, you know, this there's just been I would describe as like you know we're progressive. There even on the on the left, you know, people are progressive except for Palestine, um, and that that's definitely a thing everywhere in the West. Yeah, but I do what happened to Corbyn supporting Palestine, right? Absolutely, but I do think that's changing. Um, which is really cool to see. I mean, it's heartening because there really is no end to the, you know, Israeli apartheid and colonization without international solidarity, um, mm -hmm. much in the same way that I don't think South African apartheid could have ended without international solidarity and the and um, international pressure. So, you know, it was cool to see, like the outpouring of support for Palestine on the streets, just the, the way that the Israeli narrative fell apart the pressure from politicians, even if it was imperfect, um, was, you know, especially in the US, I, I guess my litmus test is, is really American politics. And to see like, uh, you know, AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and even Bernie, even Bernie Sanders, um, even, you know, even though as imperfect as it is, and, I'm, and, I, and I definitely don't agree with, I think they could have gone a, a lot further in their criticisms of Israel, but even seeing their advocacy kind of g give some cause for hope because that would have been unheard of. And it kind of shows you that a lot of the hysteria around Corbyn was so, it was, it was not, I mean, really, it was so driven from, uh, it was a stitch up. I mean, like, let's be honest. There was, it was, it was literally a stitch up. And I don't think there's a lot of popular support behind the, this kind this narrative, this, this like fear mongering around anti-Semitism on the left. And, you know, let's be clear. Anti-Semitism is um, not a problem on the left. Anti-Semitism is a social problem, but it's like, I absolutely reject the idea that anti-Semitism is specifically a problem on the left. Like get fucked, go to hell. You have uh, Nazis? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, uh, I, 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 like, I, yeah, yeah. I'm like, the biggest problem for me is, 
is is um is on the left. I mean, I, Jesus, I'm not scared of leftists. Um, I never have been. Uh, no, and, 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 and it's just absurd. It's just an absurd thing to claim. There's just no basis for it. And and I just reject it. I just reject the entire thing. Like, get fucked. So, um, yeah, it's probably the first time in, well, since my political memory, um, where people have been able to make claims of support for Palestine against the actions of the Israeli state. And, you know, the usual suspects in the media or, you know, in the states or other politicians have come out and tried to make the anti-Semitism smear and people aren't having any of it. And people turn around and say, no, fuck off. Yeah, just way more popular support for... Yeah, and and it's it's really good to see because, you know, the, the, the truth is the real... The real threat of anti-Semitism comes from the Zionist conflation of Jews with Israel. And the real, like, the thing for us to do is to just completely undo that and just to reject. I have, you know, I, it's not in my name. It's not in my, you know, it's not um, for me. I have nothing. I, well, I, I only have, I, I only have something to do with it insofar as I would like to publicly condemn it. So, <laughs> just being, uh, I'll, I'll, I was wondering, could you, if you if you feel comfortable, could you kind of explain what it's like as a Jewish person to have apartheid, mass death, be done in in your name, supposedly for your sake? Um. Yeah. Well, I it it like um. It offends me. I think it offends me at a molecular level. I don't want to like, you know, maybe that sounds a bit woo woo, but. I I really feel like it, uh, my fucker papa actually turn around and say no f- no like you know I feel a level of disgust and that that I feel is is informed by my family's history and my ancestry right and our struggles um, and the way that oppression has you know, like the way that the, the impact, like, like I think the greatest gift that Judaism, Jewishness, my Jewishness has given to me is an understanding of the dangers of how, of fascism, but also of what human beings can do to one another. What, and, 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 you know, like a sort of a belief in that life is about a relentless pursuit of justice, you know, justice. uh, There's a, there's a saying in Yiddish, you know, and I, it's, I'm not going to say it in Yiddish. I'm just going to say it in English. But it's just like justice, justice, you shall pursue. And, I mean, that's a huge part of Judaism. There's so much about Jewish culture that is so informed by, you know, a sort of emancipatory ethic um, that just comes from an experience with with oppression. And I, so I feel, I feel indignant um, that this, this nation state is um, drawing, you know, using my 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 religion my ancestry my name towards such a disgusting project and and you know i i hate to make the comparison but i will like i do think i don't think that these i don't think we walk on like hallowed ground or that we can never ever um compare what's happening here with historical comparisons like i'm not saying that you should go walk around calling israelis nazis i don't think it's an appropriate thing to say i think I think, especially if you're not Jewish, like stay away from that. Okay, that would be my advice to you. There's there's other historically appropriate um, comparisons you can well, make. Apartheid but, is one, right? Yeah, apartheid exactly. But when I do see like what Zionism has done 
to Jewish people in Israel, I feel, I think there's a specific kind of tragedy to that, that, you know, that, I mean, a lot of, a, a lot of Israelis are holo, like descended from Holocaust survivors or, and there are lots of Holocaust survivors in Israel. They live in poverty, actually. Interesting story. Um, there's a huge crisis of poverty among Holocaust, Holocaust survivors in, in Israel. But um, yeah, I, I see, like, I see like that as like a real human tragedy um, and something to definitely learn from. Right. You know, also, what it's done to, you know, it's it's popular set large with the the way it's created this narrative over the last 70, 80 years, right? Um, it's like, in some ways, a, a Stanford prison experiment writ large, where they've had this this group of prisoners in Gaza who they've been told of the enemy, like for entire generations, you know, like oh, sorry, multiple generations, at constant threat, constantly just fed this this line around uh, what Israel is and what their rights are um, and what their place in the world is and what Palestinians' place in the world is. Mm-hmm. You know, like cradle to grave shit. And man, some of, some of the stuff, some of the, the footage coming out of, out of Israel is pretty harrowing in regards to the way that, you know, the, the settler groups uh, are behaving it is it's really harrowing and i mean like you, look you can only describe israel as a really authoritarian militarist state um and a the the population is captured in in that sense and i mean i'm not that's not to say there isn't resistance there is but resistance is met with a lot of state aggression and pushback as well this this is not a place where you can you, I mean, you know, NGO, NGOs are hounded by the state. I mean, I got sued and I'm in New Zealand. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think it's really important to remember that. I mean, and I, and I really would draw a very big distinction between Israel and the Israeli state. Uh, like, obviously, it's not homogenous. And settlers are a specific group within Israel that are, you know, extremists and right wing. There is a left, but it is really repressed um, and small. And I would say that it is a, in a very indoctrinated, militaristic society. Everybody has to serve in the army. If you, you know, if you, you, you go to jail, you, they have a draft. If you don't serve in the army, you go to jail. And there are people, there are conscien- conscientious objectors and people who are taking responsibility and trying to resist. But I mean, it's true to say that they are few and far between. You can't really describe what it's like over there. And I think, I think it's... <sighs> As I said, I, I don't see any end without international international pressure because um, Israel it, it, Israelis are not going to decide to do the right thing at this stage. It's just not going to happen, unfortunately. Zionism is just a poisonous project. It is ethno-nationalism, and this is, you know, the logical kind of fucking endpoint of ethno-nationalism ethnic cleansing and genocide like if you you know i i just have to explain it to people in really simplistic terms like this is what zionism is is that this land should only be for jews you know there's no such thing as a multicultural country or democracy it is jews number one jews and 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 people are a threat to that palestinian children are a threat to a jewish state because that is what a Jewish state is is premised on, and and that's a really that that completely contra that that should fly in the face of even liberals' idea, you know, of democracy and multiculturalism. And yet, some for some reason, we sort of have this weird, like blind blind spot when it comes to Israel. 
um, and and the right to a jury state. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I, I'm hopeful things will change, but I th- and I think like um, the best way to talk about it is just to, to to actually appeal to some basic things. Like it's like democracy, uh, human rights, um, multiculturalism, um, a citizenship that isn't based on what race you are, but and a civic idea of citizenship. And I think we can all like like the idea of an ethno nationalist state premised on ethnicity seems wrong to all of us, and it should, because it it's completely just contravenes any even liberal ideas of the a good the good way the good the good society, right? How do you feel uh, New Zealand has responded? I I think that New Zealand responded. I I, I was disappointed with Nanaya Mahuta's comments. Um, she sort of made a tweet with some flag emojis, which seemed to minimize, uh, sort of, and refer to it as a conflict. And yeah, that's pretty uh, standard, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was disappointing. Just uh, under our comments, where she sort of talked about her concerns around human rights um, and civilian casualties, was a little bit better. Um, I was really impressed with the Greens. You know, let, let's 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 give a shout out to the Greens. Actually, I think they took a really strong stance. They support recognizing Palestine. Gallery's um, put that to the, to the house. It was really disappointing that only the Maori Party supported that motion to recognize Palestine as a state. Um, you know, actually, uh, oftentimes even national governments have. I mean, Netanyahu doesn't like New Zealand because we've stood up to them at the UN like very, very minimally. Like, let's. I won't. He holds a grudge. I'll tell you what. He actually said he was going to go to war with New Zealand, which like actually is quite a scary prospect, you guys. Because Netanyahu is a little bitch. Yeah. uh, And and there's this whole you know it's coming out it's coming out of I think Haaretz and and Israel this whole story around Netanyahu and his cronies essentially started this conflict. Oh yeah. Electoral reasons. Oh yeah, I didn't to, to even put Israel that. into a state of emergency. Yeah, yeah. This okay. is the kind of person he is. He doesn't give a shit. No, no, he doesn't give a flying shit. Israel's had like four elections in the last two years, and they keep having the same deadlocked results. And if you think that might be a good thing, no, they're all really right wing parties that are fighting, scrapping over power. Netanyahu's passed a law that says if you're a sitting president or uh, prime minister, I don't know if you, you can't be charged. One, you can't be charged with corruption. So he's clinging onto power because he's literally it's like an arrested development. There's so many. Here's so many. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's, things out against him. Absolutely. And so so every time he's this close to be to being kicked out of um of government, he starts he declares a state of emergency and starts um mowing down civilians in Gaza. And that's been sort of his um So weak. Yeah. The only person worse is his son. Yeah, his son's really terrible. And they're all friends with Bolsonaro, so you know the kind of people you're dealing with. I don't know. I think I think um this whole thing has been has just alienated Israel completely. I mean, yeah. like you can't, you can't, you can't even be nominally liberal and yeah. support what's going and on. You know, which not, is good. Even, not even Israelis like Netanyahu. Yeah, yeah. Well, no one likes Netanyahu. No one likes Netanyahu, but I don't know. You know, like it's not like they're voting for anyone like even more, more progressive. Yeah, so yeah, I, right, I'm not like, going to give them any credit. Main, want... main left contender is an ex-general, right? Like, yeah. yeah so. And and left. I wouldn't... You, no, you no. Know. Yeah. Inverted commas for those I mean, who couldn't see. I mean, in, in Israel, like like left wing is literally just... I mean, I mean, I know this is sort of similar in some places, but left wing is like an insult. And it also it means... It's kind of like synonymous with treason. It's, it's just like... It, it's unbelievable how right wing Israeli society is. 
What do you think about, I guess just to uh, round out what you're saying about the Greens, what do you think about some of the pushback around the language they were using for for protesting for Palestinian rights? Because it came pretty quick and there was like a pretty concerted effort to brand it as, what do they say? They said they were calling for genocide and that they're anti-Semitic. I think that's a projection, to be frank. Like uh, the hysterical kind of cries that the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free as a call for genocide is a prediction of the, you know, the expect like Israel is expanding from the river to the sea um, and making Palestinians unfree. So to say that the idea that of Palestinian freedom is a call for genocide, just sort of com- to me is completely revealing of what Zionism stands for. Right. So, I think, as I said, I have absolutely no time for it. I really don't. I, I, I you know, I, I have no time for um, the fear mongering around this sort of thing. No one, you know, the only people that are advocating for genocide is the is the Israeli state with their actions, and that's the truth. So um, I'm not going to give any sort of time to this idea that. <laughs> <laughs> to the idea that, like the theory, the idea that a, that um, a protest chant, while is Israel is committing genocide and ethnic cleansing, is a threat of genocide. You know, like I mean, it's just such an absurd notion. And 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 if that makes is, um, Zionists and the Jewish community uncomfortable, I just think the right thing to do is ask why. Why it makes you uncomfortable? The idea of Palestinian freedom. So that was that would all be what I would leave them with. I because I am not threatened by the idea of people being free. Thank you so much for, for sharing that with us, Justine, um, and for kind of taking us through the the current violence occurring. Um, You're welcome. In um, Palestine. I take I I feel I take a very hard line on it. So um, I your mileage will vary, and I know people feel you know I'm I'm, I'm certainly not trying to be an authority on the subject. Um, I think as a Jewish person, it's important for as an anti-Zionist Jewish person, it's important for me to really stake my claim. So certainly not pretending to be to to be an unbiased kind of commentator on this. Hey, no, none of us are, and that's what yeah. we're all about. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, thank you so much for that, and, and thanks as well to T for, for coming on the cast today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Any, any excuse to hang out with... Uh... My my bestie Justine, um, <laughs> and to talk about to, to talk about you know numerous atrocities. Apparently, that, that's also my bus. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean we've we've talked about a lot of human rights abuses. So cool. Yeah, uh, and that, go be happy now. Yeah, that's one of two hundred uh, for for this <laughs> evening. Uh, New Zealand's most negative podcast. If you've if you're feeling bad. They say that a, a problem shared is a problem doubled. So uh, share this cast around with your friends and family. Uh, <laughs> drag them down to the same level as yourself. Um, <laughs> and then, then go and sign up for Papa or... Um, Palestine yeah. Solidarity Network. Or... Yeah, or, you know, someone, well, yeah. Someone, some people who are doing something. Organize, do work on the ground, give money if you can. Yeah, I would Hon- say... Honestly, can- that's can the best- sadness. That's the best antidote. I mean, it's really when things are really nebulous and really like abstract and not concrete, it can get really disheartening. But in my experience, having organized in the prison space for a really long time, concretely doing things, concretely being like, I am making an impact by the things that I'm doing right now, or I'm working on something that's going to push for something bigger. It, it's, it can give you fuel to your fire in a way that just kind of learning about things and 
mulling on it can't. So yeah, whatever it is that you care about, get organized. Absolutely. And, and, and things can change. We just need millions of people to make it happen. So you're one of millions, get, um, get some other people involved and you know, maybe we got a stew going. That's, That's what one of 200 stands for is one of 200 yeah. million. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks again uh, to everyone who's who's uh, tuned in today. Really appreciate you listening to us. Uh, pop us a, a five-star rating on your podcast app. Uh, pop over to our Patreon. And we'll pop over to the website, 102.nz, uh, to have a check out of our articles and previous podcasts. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no Keep that in, Chris. <laughs> <laughs>